1888, a sudden, violent blizzard swept across the American Plains, killing hundreds of people, many of them children, on their way home from school. As the local paper stated, it was a beautiful day for midwinter, and no one even thought of what a change in hours time could bring. Hi, this is Greg Grasso with Chapter One, and I'm talking with uh, noted author David Laskin today. David, how are you? I'm fine. How are you, Greg? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Thank you. Good. This is our uh, second chat. I uh, I really enjoyed our first discussion on the uh, family. Uh, your uh, I guess most recent work. That's right. And uh, today we're going to talk about the children's blizzard. Uh, now this is a book you uh, you wrote a few years back. It's on a it's about a, a historical event uh, that happened in 1888. And um, why don't we start the discussion by you uh, giving us a little thumbnail sketch of the children's blizzard? Yeah, I'd be happy to. You know, the reason that it's called the children's blizzard that is the title of the book, but it's also what the pioneers called it. Uh, so dial back to 1888, we're in the upper Midwest. We're talking about the Dakota Territory, as it was then, and Nebraska. Uh, and this, this was really kind of the last frontier in a way. Uh, you know, the Oregon Trail had happened. Uh, Washington, Oregon, and California were settled up. But the Great Plains, you know, the American Prairie, was still being homesteaded. So we're back in a period of sod huts, plagues of grasshoppers, really harsh conditions. Most of the settlers were immigrants from Scandinavia, from Germany. Some of them came from the East Coast, came for the reasons that all pioneers come, free land, better conditions, opportunities. So they were settling up these homesteads on this great sea of grass and starting new lives. And suddenly, as as you said in the intro, in really very, very abrupt time period, the weather went from being uh, relatively tranquil, you know, what they call a warm January day back then. We would hardly consider warm, but, it, you know, it was above freezing, so for them that was warm, mm-hmm. to temperatures plunged, visibility went to zero, and this storm hit the Dakotas and Nebraska in the middle of a school day. So we're talking about one-room prairie schoolhouses. And um, the teachers of these schools were, in many cases, hardly more than children themselves. You know, if you've read your Laura Ingalls Wilder, you remember when Laura starts teaching. I think she was still a teenager. So, So you've got these teenage prairie schoolhouse teachers these little kids who live miles away, because we're not talking about towns, we're talking about homesteads, which are very scattered. And when the storm hit, and I have many descriptions of how violently and suddenly it hit, the teachers were faced with a decision, which in many cases turned out to be a life or death decision, whether to keep the kids in school and risk running out of fuel and freezing to death, because sometimes these blizzards blew for days and days, or whether to send them home and see if they could beat the storm and get home. So that, in essence, is what happened on that day of January 12, 1888, all over this region. And I tell the story of this killer storm through the lives of half a dozen families. So I 
trace their immigration stories. I talk about how they survived and settled in with some of the harsh conditions that they encountered in that region. And then I reconstruct what happened to them and their children on the day of the storm. That's mm. the children's blizzard in a nutshell. And it's called the children's blizzard. The pioneers called it the children's blizzard or the school children's blizzard because so many of the victims were kids who were trying to get home from these one-room prairie schoolhouses and froze to death. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Michael Landon's Little House on the Prairie, um, mm-hmm. uh, Laura Ingalls, uh, Ingalls Wilder. Um, right. Now, they were, they were, uh, this, was, this was a TV program that uh, had, had run for many, many years, and this depicted the uh, 1800 uh, migration right. of Germans and Scandinavians to the Midwest. Um, Correct. Uh, the railroad had, you know, been completed at that time, or was still being completed. But, but that rail system really brought out um, these immigrants, and mm-hmm. uh, they were coming to America just like everybody else um, uh, in history has come to America to uh, uh, to start a new life. And uh, uh, they sure weren't uh, they sure weren't ready for this uh, storm. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm glad you talked about The Little House in the Prairie. You know, before there was the TV series, there were the series of books uh, by, as you said, Laura Ingalls Wilder. And those were among the... I didn't read them as a kid. I guess they were considered girls' books. I don't know why, because they're great books. I, right. I think everybody could read them. But I, I have daughters, so I, I read them to my daughters when they were growing up. And I loved those books. And the one I liked best was called The Long Winter, and I think you can imagine why. And, uh, you know, The Long Winter is not about the the winter that I wrote about. It's not about 1888. It's about the winter of 1880 to 81. And that was a winter that started very early on the prairie. Uh, Actually, the, the first storm hit before the settlers could get their wheat to the mills. And, uh, the storms just kept coming one after another. And, uh, People, you know, ran out of supplies. The railroads were blocked. Uh, people were grinding their seed wheat in order to eke out a little bit of flour. And Laura describes, I, I call her Laura because I, I feel almost like I know her after reading the books. Sure. She describes this winter in great detail. And the book is, you know, it's it's a novel, but it, it turns out I did a lot of research into that winter Everything she wrote is absolutely true and accurate. So everything she describes, from the, the the first storm hitting to the railroads to the to her sister going blind, which happened to many settlers who were malnourished and so on and so forth, is in that book. So that was a great inspiration for me. And um, uh, you know, I I kind of semi semi jokingly call the children's blizzard "Little House in the Prairie" meets the perfect storm. Mm-hmm. Um, but in many ways, that really is what the book is about. Yeah. Yeah, I loved it. Well, th- these were uh, these were hardworking folks. Um, I-, I can't imagine uh, uh, the hardship uh, that they faced, uh, even even getting to this country. Um, but you know, um, your book talks about something else, though. Uh, your book talks about um, the Army Signal Corps at that time, right? Um, right. So that's the origin of the National Weather Service. And, you know, we love it. We hate it. Uh, we complain when they get it wrong. We tend not to notice so much when they get it right. But um, nowadays it's called the National Weather Service. But back when it started, which was right around the time of this storm that I wrote about, mm-hmm. it was all the weather forecasting, all the 
that was done at a national level in our country was done through the U.S. Army. It was done through the U.S. Army Signal Corps. So that was the first uh, embodiment of the National Weather Service. And, you know, it was the, you know, being the Army, there were all there were rules and regulations for everything, forms you needed to fill out certain times of day that you were supposed to take your weather observations and note them down in your notebooks, and it was all very spit and polish and you know, kind of by the book. But I actually did a fair amount of research in the National Archives into the U.S. Army Signal Corps. And, you know, even though it was supposed to be by the book, there were human errors that crept in. And some of the great stories, you know, so as I said, you're supposed to take your observations three times a day (laughs) at the exact same time, and then they would telegraph them into Washington. Well, some of the guys decided, well, summer, you know, is kind of Montana, summer, they wanted to go fishing. Yeah, a good fishing hole so, right down there, right down the They just kind of filled in like two weeks worth sure. and made it up and, you know, had their lackeys telegraph it in while they went fishing. Or they maybe had a little too much to drink the night before and they couldn't get up to do the early morning one. So they just kind of fudged it. So there's all this kind of stuff. And then the other thing that, that cracked me up was, the infighting and the interdepartmental, you know, backstabbing and the scrabbling for federal money and the, you know, complaints of bureaucracy and the boring meetings and the, you know, the the higher ups who are who are, you know, trashing the lower downs. It's just all the stuff that we think of as, you know, government today was going on back then too. So when you go through the records and and the archives and and the correspondence, I mean a lot of it is very, very dry and very tedious, but if you kind of stick with it, you pick out the drama. And I would say, you know, I'm I'm joking now, but some of it was is actually not at all funny. And and the drama that I picked out that pertains to the children's blizzard is basically the government really didn't seem to notice or care that all of these kids died. The major concern of the Signal Corps back then, their mission was protecting life and property, but I would say property came first, life was very distant second. And so this same front, this cold front that caused this killer storm actually traveled all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico, plunging temperatures as it moved south, and had a very serious impact on the sugar growers in Louisiana. And the only correspondence and kind of hand-wringing and and flap-doodling I've found pertaining to the storm in the federal records pertain to the sugar growers. And, oh, you know, they're complaining because we didn't give them advance warning how cold it would get. But the fact that, uh, you know, 10-year-old kids are freezing to death in Dakota Territory uh, was not noted. So very interesting, um, you know, that that aspect is interesting. One other thing that I found noteworthy, and this is not in the federal record, but this is kind of the, the, the human record that, you know, the ordinary people, what, what they wrote about the storm and the aftermath and their own reactions to it, Nobody, there was no finger pointing. You know, nowadays when there's a, a natural disaster, an act of God, people are, oh, you know, somebody needs to bail us out. We need government funds. We need somebody to come in here. We need FEMA. But back then, the attitude of the pioneers was pretty much, we 
got to take care of it ourselves and with our neighbors and our families. People rallied around. There was very, very low expectation that anybody else was going to pitch in and help you. You were kind of on your on your own out there. So the government uh, didn't really seem to be in the business of disaster relief, and, and people didn't really expect them to be. And uh, that was very clear from, from the government record. Well, David, you've just described the current um, uh, uh, 20, 21st century army. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, well, I, I'm teasing, of course, but I remember, um, well, let's go back to uh, Pearl Harbor when, when, uh-huh. we, when we had the first radar in- installation on the island, um, uh, you know, securing the uh, Pacific. Um, because there's stories about Pearl Harbor, about the uh, about the this new technology, this radar, sure. and uh, you know, uh, middle management uh, sergeants, tops, and and whatever. Yeah, forget about it. You know, it's nothing. It's it's, it's <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, w- when you were talking about the yeah. about the signal corps, it, it kind of brought me back to uh, my days in the in the service. Um, yeah, same kind of thing. Still goes on. Still goes on. Yep. Yep. Oh boy. Well, um, okay. You talked about uh, all the research you did. Did you have a chance to talk to any descendants of of uh, anyone particular, or or was this just archived uh, or archival material? Right. Yeah, I did. I, I, in several cases, I well, the the closest descendant, and this, this sounds kind of incredible, but you do the math and it actually all all pencils out. Mm. I talked to a woman whose father was trapped in that storm, and they lived in a little town called Groton, South Dakota. And uh, you know, the the way I found her, and this is a tip for other researchers mm. out there. Uh, Nowadays, with the internet, it's surprisingly easy to place classified ads. And I mean, I guess it always was, but I put classified classified ads in every single newspaper in South Dakota and Nebraska. Those are the two states hardest hit by the storm. And it really was not very costly. And I just put a little ad saying, you know, seeking um, families connected with the Great Blizzard of 1888. And this woman named Barbara Wagner contacted me, and she was in her 80s, and her dad was a young boy at the time. And it's one of the great stories of the book. I'm not going to tell the story because I don't want to give it away. Uh, Spoiler alert here. But um, Barbara, you know, I went to uh, South Dakota to meet her, and... uh, she told me the story of her dad, and then, bless her, she had some old memoirs and newspapers and, and letters and things that he'd written. It turns out her dad was kind of a journalist. Um, I think he worked on, I don't think he was much of a writer, but I think he was kind of a, you know, on the staff of or one of the editors of, a, I believe it was an agricultural um hmm. Uh, journal. Anyway, he wrote up some of the stories of his childhood, really intending to give them to his grandkids. And one of them was the story of what happened to him in the Great Blizzard of 1888. So that was great. And, you know, she was still living basically just a mile or so from where her dad had been. And I kind of was able to walk the walk mm-hmm. from the school house to, you know, where where her dad, Walter, was supposed to, to get to. And how he got lost and so on. Um, and then the other one that was fantastic, uh, five kids 
who were victims of the storm came from the town of Freeman, South Dakota. It's a little bit to the west of uh, Sioux Falls there. And they were all Mennonites. And uh, their families traced their heritage back to Switzerland originally, and they had been persecuted in Europe because their brand of Christianity was not uh, in accord with the beliefs of the, the kind of the mainstream. And so they wandered all over Europe and ended up in present-day Ukraine, a region that's much in the news these days. And from there, in the 1870s, they came to the U.S., and they, these Mennonites are very, very history-minded, very, very family-minded. They have great archives, great letters, and um, great uh, records. And I was able to talk to two of the nieces of uh, these, some of these boys um, who were uh, caught in the storm. So, you know, I have to say, Greg, there's nothing really that's more important for the kind of work I do, this, this narrative nonfiction where I, where I write these, these history books that really read like novels. There's nothing more important than talking with the family members and being on the scene and walking the walk. And in every case that I possibly could, I would really try to retrace the route of these kids on January 12, 1888. Okay, where was the school? Where were they trying to get... Uh, what it, you know? What, what were the conditions? What was the terrain, the topography? And you know, I kind of went in thinking, I'm guessing the way most people think of Nebraska and South Dakota as pancake flat, but it's not. No. You know, hmm. some of it is, but some of the parts were rolling. Some actually were there were ravines, and uh, you know, there was one part called the Bohemian Alps. Mm. Kind of a joking name because there's no Alps, but <laughs> you know, this is part of a beautiful part of South Dakota, which is kind of hilly and rugged. <laughs> and you know, if you're 10 years old and you're caught in a blizzard, any little hill, rut, or ravine is going to be very, very important. So I went back uh, and really tried to retrace these these steps. So um, long answer, but yes, I, I did talk to some descendants, and, and that was probably the, the best part of the research for me. I'm glad you mentioned that you did actually go out and, and you know, walk the terrain a little bit because I think I, I walked a little bit of the Oregon, Oregon Trail out here in Idaho, mm-hmm. and, you know, I try as I was walking, um, I'm trying to imagine – Holy crap! Can you imagine pulling wagons and oh, yeah. food and sundries and supplies yep. and kids and you know? Uh, I mean, I I just cannot imagine. Um, you know, I remember a, a story um, I tell about going hunting out here in Idaho, and you know, you you walk up the big hill and you shoot your elk, and you're thinking, ah, easy. I'll just drag it down. Eh, doesn't yeah. work like that. <laughs> doesn't work like that yeah. at all. <clears throat> I um um yeah, I I I like this uh I you know what? I I really like you as a writer because you 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 have um, an incredible ability to to take this fact, to take this uh, this um uh this this uh, uh these these uh, uh historical moments in time like uh, uh your book the long way home which is a, mm-hmm. a story about the the great war or world war one mm-hmm. that's right and um i by the way i can't wait to get you back on the phone to read uh to discuss this because i started reading this one and uh 
the long way home is 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 just like uh, um, the children's blizzard. It's just like the family. Um, you, you've got a, a really creative way to uh, to represent your story. And um, great, yeah, yeah. I mean, really good stuff, David. I mean, uh, I appreciate honestly, that. once uh, you know, you, you you sent me these books a few months ago, and uh, I dove road, uh, I dove right into the uh, children's blizzard. Um, uh, because I, I thought it'd be very interesting, and it was. Well, it was fantastic. It was fantastic. You know, um, one more point, one more point. Yeah. Um, you did, um, to put this book together, of course, you, you studied some of the meteorological archives, mm-hmm. and, um, mm-hmm. you know, they. Uh, I did a little bit uh, research about this deep freeze from uh, 1882 to 1888. Um, mm-hmm. You see any connection with today's... Uh, uh, weather uh, or climate changes? Well, you know, this the 1880s was kind of pre, you know, greenhouse effect. Sure, um, sure. So, but, you know, a couple of points do come up. Um, you know, I'm not debunking global warming at all. I mean, obviously, this is happening. Our climate is changing. There, there's, you know, whether it's caused by humans or not, um, you know, I think that the jury's not entirely... Um, right decided on that one uh, but um just you know it's there's no question that temperatures have been rising over the past century but the other thing that i find is that which which i'm sure you know any climate scientist would back up you know every t- anytime there's something weird in the mm-hmm. weather mm-hmm. we always go oh it's global warming yeah, yeah. so you know oh you know we we have um you know hurricane sandy it's it's global warming. Oh, we've had an unusually cold winter, you know, not here in Seattle, but in a lot of parts of the country. You know, cold snow. Well, you know, it must be climate change. Something weird, Something's weird with the climate. Well, you know, I found in researching weather, people have been saying this forever. Absolutely. Um, you know, there's always, there's always weird. <laughs> Absolutely. And the other thing that I find, not so much by the late 19th century, but certainly earlier in our history, is there's a lot of correlation between weird and especially deadly weather and uh, religion and a sense mm-hmm. of we caused it because we're sinful. I mean, this is kind of goes back to the Bible almost. Yeah. You know, the, we, we brought these, these mm-hmm. plagues and penitence upon ourselves because we've been, you know, sinful or we didn't obey the laws of God and we are being punished with whatever tornadoes, drought, uh, you know, whatever. It's horrible weather conditions that destroy our crops, that destroy our livelihood. So, I, you know, obviously our science is much more advanced now than it was in the days of the Bible. And I'm not debunking any of this by any means, but I do think that there is a human tendency to uh, kind of uh, introduce, uh, you know, a certain amount of, of catastrophic thinking and a certain amount of it's got to be some external cause you know i think the idea that it was just bad luck or it was just a clash of air masses you know there was warm humid air coming over the south and frigid air in canada they came together bam they caused the storm and it killed my kid Mm -hmm. that's really hard to face yeah I think it's, in some ways, it's almost, it's not comforting, but I think it makes us, makes it kind of puts things in perspective more and maybe allows us to grapple with it more if we go 
you know, this is global warming, or this is an act of God, or this is punishment. It, it somehow gives us a handle on it. So I, I think, um, you know, this tendency to peg killer weather onto some greater cause or supreme being or great shift in the, in the natural cycles has been going on a long time. And I definitely think it's a very pronounced strand in American history. And you don't really have to look very far to understand why, because we have some of the most extreme and deadly weather in the world. I mean, I think we have more tornadoes than anywhere else. And, mm-hmm. you know, in one country, you know, because we're so big, you know, we get blizzards and droughts and, you know, killer heat waves and hail. And, I mean, I'm a great fan of the Weather Channel. And at first, when the Weather Channel first started, I thought, oh, who could, you know, who would ever watch that? Or sure. how could that go sure. on 24-7? But there's something going on all the time. Yeah. So it's fascinating to, to write and to research the weather in this country, and also to write about and research how people have interpreted it and how they've um, kind of almost read in greater meaning into the cycles of nature. So, yeah, definitely this, this is a strand that has repeated throughout our history. Yeah, my, my, um, I guess my point is um, my parents, uh, their grandparents were immigrants, and uh, they were born in the 30s, and, you know, um, they were taught by their parents uh, hardship, you know, survival, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's all about, you know, it's all about stop complaining um, look what's coming and prepare for it for crying out yeah. loud. This is yeah. what kills me more than anything else is people are bitching and moaning and groaning. But you know what? They're, they're, they're not at the local level. They're not teaching people how to uh, keep warm. You know, when the, when the energy goes south or, yep. or how yep. to start a fire or how to, how to get water. I mean, these are, these are survival skills that the pioneers knew they had to yep. embrace those skills to even survive um, yes, there were probably a few that bitched and moaned, but but for crying out <laughs> loud, you know, yeah. they did what they had to do, okay? And yeah. this, is, this is, you know, it's like, you know, we're, we're losing sight uh, a little bit. We're losing sight of what, of what man has achieved on earth since, since history. Look what we've yeah. done. Look what we've, we've been able to do. Look at, look at what we've built and developed. And it's all about uh, the will of, of mm-hmm. the human of, of mankind, you know, and, and yeah. how far we can go and how we've survived. And again, the children's blizzard is, is a great, um, uh, account, uh, not only of tragedy and death, but of survival. So I look well, at thanks, it that Greg. way. I, yeah, I appreciate that. And yeah, I, I, that was, you've, you've kind of nailed my intention there of, you know, looking both at the tragedy and the survival and yeah. the, the families that, you know, one thing that have, that's really struck me is how deeply rooted these families are. I mean, yes. they settled in this region, and in many cases, you know, it, it made my research a little bit easier because you go to these towns mm-hmm. that you read about in the old newspapers from 1888, and the same families are still there. Yes. Um, you know, there obviously has been some coming and going, but uh, I would say less so than other parts of the country that I'm familiar with. So there, you know, the, the many cases, the homesteads, they were claimed and settled up in the 1880s. Are still in the same family. So there's there's a, definitely a lot of pride 
in that region. And, you know, I, I think a lot of respect for the hardship. I mean, it's not an easy place to survive. And, you know, population on the on the prairie has been declining. It's uh, I think the conditions have become, um, you know, I think there's greater acknowledgement of, of how difficult it is. And uh, agriculture there in many parts, especially as you move west, becomes marginal and without water. Yeah. Um, yeah. non-existent. So it's it there's you know th- these are questions that uh that are that haunt the American West and uh you know I think the American West really begins in in uh the prairie. Yeah. I agree. Hey, this has been a great talk, David. Um Absolutely. Thanks again, Greg. And um, if you want to talk about the children, I mean if you want to talk about the long way home, give me a call. Happy to uh, do it. I'm going to do that and one more question to you. Yep. Are, I hope hopefully, hopefully you're writing something else or are you taking a little hiatus or what? I'm not really taking a hiatus, but I'm I'm kind of edging into my next project. I'm not sure it's going to be a book, uh okay. but something and I'm going to I always keep my projects under wraps until they're farther along, so Unfortunately, you and your listeners won't find out about it until it's published, but I, I think it's going to start as a um, an article, and I'll just give a little hint. Uh, I think the subject, well, I, I know the subject that I'm interested in, and I haven't quite exactly found the handle, has to do with race and religion. And oh. um, those are big subjects, but I have a kind of interesting uh, interesting insight into it. So again, other facets of American history, I think I really... I love this country. I love writing about this country. So uh, that's that's what I'm working on now. So stay tuned. <laughs> David, um, enjoy talking to you. You've been great. I really appreciate okay. it. Okay. Well, thanks a lot, Greg, and we'll, we'll talk again soon. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye.